Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person um, trying to comprehend what's happening in the world. I mean, the last two weeks, millions of Ukrainians have been forced from their homes. I mean, people in nursing homes forced from their homes, um, young children walking miles, families carrying pets, no ideas where they're about to go, thousands killed, homes, buildings, infrastructure destroyed. I, you know, and, and, and so I'm feeling... Anger, agitation, I'm obsessed with the news. I'm experiencing secondhand trauma, and it's like secondhand smoke. And many of many of you are probably also experiencing this secondhand trauma. I mean, there's just been pesticide, uh, a pandemic, a war, is a famine on the edge. And so all of that stress makes us less healthy and less effective. And on today's guest have a wonderful tips on how to be present to the pain while reducing stress. Um, welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Laurie Ellis Young and George E. Well Ellis. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you for having us, Laura. Thank you very much. We're excited to be here. I, I'm excited to have you too because your background is so amazing. So George, just let's start with you a little bit. Tell us a, a little bit about your background. You're um you're neuro, neuro, you're a neuroscientist and you were working in Ukraine. Well, I'm a clinical psychologist with some neuroscience training, um, and I was working in Ukraine from 2016 to the end of March 2021. I was senior psychologist for an organization called OSCESMM, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, Special Monitoring Mission to Ukraine. And, and you were there just a few weeks ago. Yes. Also, um, I also... I was asked to come back and do some special training for something called post-incident procedure, which is when there are critical incidents like one of our armored vehicles runs over a mine or or people, mission members are seeing really horrible things um, like like schools being blown up or bodies or just member men or children being dead. Um, that's that's very direct traumatic stress. Traumatic stress reactions can be very, very severe. So I was hired with that idea in mind to bring in some training to help deal with that so that people don't end up with chronic post-traumatic stress reactions. So that training I gave a couple of weeks ago, and I, and I returned a few days before the um, invasion. So what do you make of this moment? Well, it's just really painful. It's really sad. It's frustrating. And I would imagine that most people, even though I, I know a lot of people that are have left there, but also I know a lot of people, local nationals that I worked with in OSCE, that are still there. Some of those folks have probably gone to escape to Poland or Romania. Others are likely in bunkers or hiding underneath um Highway bridges and others may be picking up guns. So it is really a very difficult experience to conceptualize and to feel. Left people behind. And so what's your personal response when you're seeing all this stuff? Well, that's a, you, you brought something up really uh, just a few minutes ago that I, that I really appreciate. When we're watching CNN or NBC or whatever news channel that this is presenting this information, it's really easy to get really angry and scared and horrified and that and really have even a sense of what is how do we make meaning in the world of what's happening? 
And all of that is happening, and it's really easy to get really agitated in a state of hyperarousal. In other words, you know, one of our two survival states, which freeze and fight or flight, gets activated, and suddenly we begin to experience some, start to feel some of the same things that people are actually directly experiencing the pain. And that's referred to as secondary post-traumatic stress reaction. So we need to be very careful as people who are consumers of news, people who really do care about what's happening, that have a lot of strong feelings, that feel like the meaning they're making is really scary. We need to be really aware that as we see these images, as we experience this, as we think about these scenarios, that we also try to down-regulate that hyperarousal. We try to find ways to become more balanced and more grounded through breath, through exercise, through self-care, so that we stay in a balanced state. Because if we don't, we are much more vulnerable to actually beginning to experience secondary post-traumatic stress reactions. And I'm, I'm going to bring uh, Lori in here. Um, so, Lori Ellis, tell us a little bit about your background, Lori Ellis Young. Well, I've, uh, I started practicing yoga over 40 years ago, <laughs> over, actually over 45 years ago now. And I became a yoga teacher, and uh, that led me to, to breath, to being aware of my breath. And then I started trekking in the Himalayas in Nepal and the Andes in Peru. And those experiences of being in high altitude and needing breath for stamina, physical stamina, but also mental, emotional, spiritual stamina. It's, it's all of it. Breath is life. <laughs> so that made me become more impassioned with the power of our own breath. It's like in our ordinary breath, we have extraordinary power for uh, dealing with life, for confronting life, for enjoying life for letting go of things that we need to let go of in life. For I, I just I, I started a nonprofit called Breathologic and also a company called Breathe a Change. And so for the last uh, 20 years, George, I've been with George and we have lived on five different continents and worked with all different types of populations besides uh, what the last population of working in Ukraine. We have been in Guatemala uh, post-Civil War, in Kosovo uh, right after the war there, in Cambodia, and we have seen how working with a breath is something you know we all have it so it is this constant resource for um healing healing from from traumas and i i actually i hadn't heard of this expression secondhand trauma and um, so, George, you want to go into that? Because I guess there's some called mirror neurons. And so I'm watching the news. I'm experiencing all this agitation and all this pain. And um, my, my body's in, totally inflamed. Um, and that's, that's common. Well, there's two, there's two different kinds of labels. One is called 
post-traumatic stress disorder, which is um, post-traumatic post-traumatic stress reactions that have become chronic. Okay, usually when we experience something really scary, really really potentially life-threatening, like a car accident, or we've seen something horrific, or then we will have, naturally for the first two, three, four weeks, we will likely have some post-traumatic stress reactions that are normal. Could be hypervigilance, it could be intrusive memories, it could be avoidance of the area. They usually go away. Most of us have resilient nervous systems, and eventually those begin to fade. And after a month to five, six weeks, those symptoms go away. Well, PTSD is what happens is when that aggregate of symptoms actually becomes chronic and we are not able to sleep or we're waking up in the middle of the night or we're avoiding uh, lots of situations. We're really scared about what might happen. So our whole lives are affected dramatically. That's referred to as PTSD. That is a kind of a direct um, contact with something. Secondary post-traumatic stress reactions are when and a lot of frontline people will face things like that. We will, we will hear the stories. We will see the stories on the news. Now, we didn't directly experience the bombing. We didn't directly experience the starvation or the long lines while we're freezing, waiting to cross the border into Poland or Romania. We didn't feel those things, but we saw it on the news, or we've read it in the newspaper, or we've heard firsthand accounts from other people who are in significant pain. And what happens is our nervous systems, because they're so ancient, okay, um, free state, which is one of the survival states, is 500 million years old. Fight or flight is 400 million years old. And both these nervous system circuits were born in the primordial waters of the oceans. So these nervous system states, if there's a perceived threat, our brain doesn't say it's real versus not real. Our bodies respond as if it's always real. So we see these images. If, our, if we start to have our hearts race, our respiration, we get extremely upset, angry, scared, we may, be, or we may begin to experience some of those post-traumatic stress reactions, even though we didn't directly experience the incident. That's called secondary PTSD, if it becomes chronic. And that's something that I, I'm really hoping to convey to people, that one of the best ways to work towards avoiding that is that when we're experiencing really significant incidents indirectly, to stay balanced and grounded, to use our breath, to stay in a, in, in a more peaceful, calm place. We still access our feelings of hurt and frustration, but we're not getting into a state of hyperarousal or a sense of freeze and hopelessness. And that hyperarousal, we're going to take a break, but that hyperarousal, I mean, human animals do not make good decisions when we're hyperaroused. We need to calm the system down so that we can be present to what's happening and create a different story. So when we return, we're going to do a, a short exercise to help people uh, learn how to regulate themselves and be calm in difficult times. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice.
Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. Um, I'm Laura Headland, and I'm very uh, pleased to have uh, Lori Ellis Young and George e. uh, Ellis uh, join us right now. And they have uh, uh, um, George is a psychologist who was in Ukraine for several years, um, and uh, uh, Lori has uh, a new book out called "Breath Is Life: Taking In and Letting Go: How to Live Well, Love Well, Be Well." Um, and they both have traveled the world um, in difficult times. They've 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 worked in several war zones, um, and and so uh, Lori, um, we want to talk now a little bit. Uh, just give people a tip in case they are feeling a lot of stress right now. So we might talk about a belly breath. Okay. All right. Well, the first thing that I would advise people to do is to, after they've been watching the news or um, reading papers or um, whatever, is to take a moment to either stand or sit down, become aware of their feet, where their feet are connected to the ground, to the earth beneath the ground, and then allow their eyes to close. That simple. Close your eyes. Consciously soften your eyes because that takes us to a whole different place of starting to feel more solace or more, um, uh, re- more relief from the trauma around us. So just closing our eyes. And then you can also do the simple thing of a gentle smile because a gentle smile tells the brain that you're safe. Usually it's watching TV, it's reading. We start to feel that as George was talking about um, secondhand trauma, but this is a way of curtailing it for even just a moment by next bringing your focus, total focus, to your breath, to knowing if you're inhaling, knowing if you're exhaling, because that's something we usually have no idea of, and concentrating on that, and then the physical feeling of the breath moving in the body, that flow of taking in and letting go, that that gives our mind a rest, our nervous system a rest. And then what I would suggest is to bring your breath as low into your belly as possible. When we are breathing in our belly, physiologically, we cannot be in a state of outright panic because breathing in our belly tells our brain that we're safe. Our brain changes our breath but our breath can change our brain. And then the third thing that I would like to leave you with is just to make your exhale. We have more control usually over the exhale than the inhale. So to lengthen your exhale. And if you want, count. Find, find whatever is your comfortable inhale intake. Maybe it's a count of two, maybe it's three, maybe it's six whatever it is, and then consciously count your exhale, slowing your exhale to twice as long. So those three things will um, definitely help to regulate your nervous system. So I don't know if George has anything to add to that. I think that's beautifully said. 
I, I, the only thing I would love to emphasize that Laurie talked about is, is that the two survival states that are activated when there's a perceived threat. And so the more that we can, when we're around really difficult things, the more we can find ways to feel safe, to anchor a sense of safety into our body through our breath, through positive imagery, and we'll be able to better be resilient and to manage and also tolerate really hard things. And this is really important because we want to be present in the world. We want to be connected to what's happening. Uh, but at the same time, we don't want to experience secondary post-traumatic stress reactions chronically. So it's about safety. It's about anchoring a sense of safety in our bodies, calming down and down-regulating. And the more we can do that consciously, the more we can shift our state from a survival state to a sense of calm and peace and balance. The more we can be present in the world and the more we can really use our nervous systems to help other people feel safe also. And then, as Laurel talked about, the better we can do that, the more we're able to really make really healthy decisions, relate with people, access our empathy and compassion. And that's mm -hmm. when we make really good decisions. There's so much I want to unpack in there because um, so you were in Ukraine um, recently um, and worked four years doing a mental health and stress resiliency program. So you want to briefly mention what that was about just so people understand what uh, you were doing there? I'd be delighted. Um, Lori mentioned it already. We worked in three post-conflict zones, uh, Guatemala, Cambodia, and the Balkans. And I, but I never had an opportunity to work in an active conflict zone. In post-conflict zones, what was really obvious is the trauma civil society was experiencing was almost as if people were constantly in a state of distrust, hypervigilance, and almost frozen in time. Just as a, as a brief example, um, in, I was, Rios Mont committed genocide on indigenous Mayan people during a 36-year civil war. And most of those were rural populations where their military would come through and kill an entire village and then throw them into mass graves. I had an opportunity to work with a forensic anthropology team as a psychologist to work with grief. And we would dig up these mass graves of hundreds of people. And then my job was to work with the community to begin to, to deal with their grief. And what we saw was that as people grieved, as people addressed their memories in a, in a somewhat calm, painful, but calm way, that sense of frozenness, frozenness changed. They were able to move forward. And that was what was clear about post-conflict zones. But I had never worked in a conflict zone, an active conflict zone. So, although Lori was a little reticent to... Um, to jive into a job like that, we did, we did go to the Ukraine because OSCE-SMM was really foresightful about wanting to work directly with their mission members. Their mission members were about 1,500 to 1,700 people that worked for OSCE, and their job was to deal with human rights, with ceasefire, ceasefire violations, and they worked a lot with the civil population. And so what OSCE was concerned about is, is something of the, that both post-traumatic stress disorder and secondary PTSD could be manifesting. So they hired me to begin to develop a, 
program to help people's nervous systems become more resilient, which would mean that as, as the population of mission members are resilient, that allows them to better serve the civil population to be present with them. So we're going we're gonna to take we're going to take a break and we're gonna come back. We're we're talking with the authors of Breath Is Life, uh, taking in and letting go, how to live well, love well, be well. Lori Ellis Young and George um, T. Ellis. Um, we're talking about how to um, be awake to all the suffering in the world and find that calm, grounding breath that um, that can mirror up a better world. Rain into a paper cup They slither wildly As they slip away Across the universe Pools of sorrow Pools of sorrow Waves of joy they're both drifting through us right now. Um, and uh, this is Laura Hedlund, and uh, you're listening to Food Freedom Radio, and we're talking with the authors of the book, Breath is Life, Laurie Ellis Young and George T. Ellis. And we want to break, um, we were talking a little bit about the difference between being reactive and proactive. Um, you want to talk on that a little bit more, Laurie? Yeah, I think that what, um, what was so wonderful about working in Ukraine with uh, OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which is um, uh, known kind of as a little sister of the UN. It has 57 nation states that belong to it. So the people that were working there were from all of these different countries. And that this organization would bring George in to be proactive to helping these people deal with the traumas and build stress resiliency right at the very beginning. And, you know, it's so much, it's like a stitch in time saves nine. (laughs) It's true with um, stress resiliency also. So to bring it back to what you were talking about earlier, Laura, with people experiencing so much pain just by watching and learning what is going on is before they turn on the TV or before they go to the internet is to start a breathing practice, close their eyes, get their breath in their belly, start to be proactive with it so that then as you're watching it, you can um, continue with that slower, deeper breath to help regulate the nervous system with everything that's going on. So, George, I want to hear more about the being uh, proactive um, in Ukraine uh, before this war. What, what was your, what, what type of response were you getting? What were you teaching? Well, um, I was teaching uh, stress management, essentially. So when I first got to OSCESMM, I met with the ambassador to um, the organization, and they sat me down and asked me to go to the conflict zone and uh, go into the because OSCE SMM was the only international organization, the only organization that was allowed to cross the line of contact. Line of contact was a demarcation where on one side was um, the Ukrainian military, and the, on the other side was the Russian-backed um, 
Luhansk People's Republic and the Donetsk People's Republic. It was the Donbass region. And this line of conflict was where, where there was a gray zone we could drive through to cross through both border patrols on both sides. And uh, the ambassador asked me to go and spend six, seven weeks meeting with mission members, um, management, administration, both local nationals and our our expat uh, mission members, and and really hear what people are experiencing, what their feelings were, what people's reactions were, etc. To get a real sense about what living in an active conflict zone was like for these people, for our mission members. So I spent six, seven weeks, and then I came back, crossed back into Ukraine, and um, met with the ambassador and, and told him my findings, and then proposed a, a variety of trainings that would build resilience, would downregulate the nervous system from freeze and fight or flight, that would help people stay much more balanced and calm in order to really do a couple of things. Number one, avoid the possibility of getting chronic post-traumatic stress reactions. And the other is to be able to be much more present, much more available to each other, to be able to support each other as mission members, but also to be able to work closely with the civil population, staying calm and connected and being a positive resource to them. And that was how OSC was really wanting to direct the support both to its mission members and to civil society. Well, I'm going to take a bit of a jump right now because we have also we have um, issues of so much violence and it's just it's heartbreaking us. I mean, there's all this violence in school. And I know you also worked in Montana as a school psychologist and with people in violence. And so there's something about being in when, when you're able to meet someone who is freaked out and being super calm and how that can alleviate. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Well, it's really interesting. Um, uh, I'll briefly talk about the, the model that I'm really talking about is what's called the polyvagal theory, developed initially by Professor Stephen Porge. And what he proposed was three parts of the model. One was um, neuroception, which means that we have an unconscious radar mm-hmm. that is constant looking for both safety and danger. And when we have a, a trauma history, we see much more danger than someone else would be. So our neuroception is constantly a radar looking for safety and danger. Um, We have the states of the nervous system, which are the two survival states, and then uh, social engagement and being connected to others. And then the other part of the principle is the um, co-regulation, which is where nervous systems can positively or negatively affect other nervous systems. So when I had about students come in and they might have been crying or yelling and upset because their best friend um, was dating their, their the partner, the person they were interested in, and they're really freaked out, the more I stayed calm, the more I stayed peaceful, the lower and slower my breath was. Eventually, I could get them to breathe low and slow, and my nervous system would support them becoming more resilient and downregulating. And then their eye contact improved, and there was an ability to truly talk and share. Yeah, and how you find that. And Lori, in your book, you tell a, a, a long time ago you were a flight attendant, and you talked about this guy who was late for the plane, and he almost, I mean, he was really rageful. Um, you want to share that story? 
<laughs> okay. Actually, I wasn't a flight attendant. I was a gate agent. Okay. And I was working a flight, and um, I knew that I had a passenger. This is at the Minneapolis airport, if anybody knows that airport. From uh, one end of the concourse to the other, it seems like it's maybe 10 miles. And I knew that a passenger was coming in clear on the other end of the airport. And I asked my uh, supervisor if I could hold the flight for him because he landed. And they said, no, you have to get the flight out on time. So uh, as I got the flight out and came back and was just doing post-departure work, I heard this sound of um, heavy heavy, fast feet running. And this huge man came up to the counter and said, uh, is the flight here? Is the flight here? I said, no, sir. I'm sorry. The flight went out on time. And in front of me, he threw down his briefcase and threw his whole body onto the ground and started wailing and tantruming. <laughs> and uh, I went into a freeze state. It was like, what do I do? Do I call security? Is he going to harm me? Is, um, you know, what what's going on here? And it was interesting to watch that my breath just said, okay, freeze. And so um, he tantrumed. He had to get it out. He'd, you know, run all this way. And... Um, and then he got up and he kind of brushed himself off and felt calm and and a little sheepish maybe and uh, let me rebook him on another flight. Well, you so, know, and I, what I love about that story, and, and uh, George, tell me if I'm right on this. I know uh, I, the, the word in dogs is called thwarting behavior. If you don't let the dogs do what they do, then they kind of get more freaked out. And I think our human culture has not been allowed to vent. We're not allowed to feel our emotions or express what we want to say at the time. And so all that gets stuck mm-hmm. in. And, I mean, we obviously want to be peaceful in everything we do. I mean, we want to, you know, we have boundaries. But that ability to just let out a yell and express what we're feeling is really vital, isn't it, George? Well, you know, it's really interesting. Um, a correlate to what Lori's talking about is is that most animals, when they're under, when they perceive a threat, and they are, uh, they either freeze or they're fight or flight. And if they, so it's about ninety seconds of screaming terror that either they're dead and eaten, or they get away. So those that get away, the first thing these animals do is they shake, they reset their nervous system. So, and then after they've reset their nervous system, they go back with their, um, to do what they were doing. They were feeding, they were doing whatever they were doing. So in a lot of ways, what we're working on and what you're talking about is how do we reset our nervous systems in a way that is not scaring other people, but that is really healthy for us? How do we downregulate in a way that really supports health and growth? Yeah, and that's like Qigong or a lot of different exercises. We'll start with just like shaking just to kind of to, – to, uh, that, and, and you have a lot of exercises about that too in your book, Breath is Life, correct, Lori? Yes, yes. So, but sometimes when – I mean, these things, um, it can sometimes feel – I'm not sure even how to say this, but like um, minimizing the, the, the depth of the struggle that is going on right now. And I know you have a, sh- a story else about someone that experienced Hiroshima. And, and mm-hmm. there you want to share um, that person's experience? Mm-hmm. Yes. He, he was a very, very powerful teacher for me. 
I uh, met him in Hiroshima, and um, he had—he was in his seventies when I met him. And at fourteen was when the atom bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, and he was working in a factory outside uh, the center, the epicenter where the bomb was dropped, where his home was. And so I still remember his story so well. When he told it, he took off running, and despite the fact that the heat from the bomb um, and the wailing of people and the uh, just the horrible experience of going by people that had skin melting off them, and he helped me, help me. He he didn't. He just knew that he had to get to his home. And when he got there, it was gone. I mean, everything around had been incinerated. And so at 14, he had lost his family. He, his whole life was, you know, like a hell. And he spent two years in, in depression, in anger, in rage, and trying to work through what had happened to him his family, society, how to make sense of it all. And what he did is he says that he breathed him, he, he breathed peace. First he had to breathe out pain with the exhale, the letting go. And then with the inhale, he would just tell himself, I'm, I'm breathing in peace, I'm feeling peaceful. And the exhale, let it go, the pain, let it go, the trauma, let it go, the anger, go the rage keep breathing in peace breathing out the pain breathing in peace breathing out the pain and um which i call the bit bot breath breathing in peace breathe out pain whether that be physical again mental emotional or spiritual and after two years he came to a place where he really was able to feel peaceful and he dedicated the rest of his life to sharing basically that breath and peace techniques it theatrically and with groups and he traveled the world doing this so you know, um, I, um, that's something that we're, we're going to take a break we'll be back for our last segment and um i um i, I just see i just saw Otto schaumer um has a, a new article in on medium uh, putin and the power of collection a- collective action from a shared awareness so how do we, yeah, yeah, and so this idea of can we create, I mean, how do we, how do we move in a world that connects our head, our heart, and our will and create something that we all want to live in? We're going to take a break and we'll be right back. We're going to connect the situation in Ukraine with food and uh, dream of a better way. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and we're talking with the authors of Breath is Life, Lori Ellis Young and George T. Ellis, um, who have worked in Ukraine. And um, there's so many aspects of the food system in this Ukraine, but um, David Beasley, the executive director of the United Nations World Food Program, um, commented uh, last week that the bullets and bombs in Ukraine could take global hunger crisis to a level beyond anything we've seen before. 
of course, Ukraine and Russia are uh, global supplies of, of wheat. Um, 25% of um, uh, the fertilizers come from Russia for Europe. So these are very, very, very difficult issues. How can is the is the is the war in Ukraine? Um, it, it's connected to the food system in many ways. Um, where do we find the resiliency? I'll leave that for you. That's kind of a big question, Laurie and George. But um, I, I mean, after the pandemic and war, I mean, famine, worldwide famine, is a very scary, scary thought. Um, and I, you know, it's I, I I'm not uh, I, I, I I'm not sure what to do on that. I mean, it's it's um, you know, it's I mean, I don't know if you can even say because it's it. There's so many parallels um, between like the energy use and and I mean, on, on the one hand, we really need renewable energy, but we also need our gas right now. On the one hand, there's this wonderful stuff going on with no cost natural farming that doesn't even require fertilizers and doing uh, permaculture, but that things all take time and might people might be really hungry right here and right now. And and I think just trying to having the right emotional regulation as a species could really help us face all these crises and come up with a great solution. Well, um, I, I actually will will probably want to turn up tone over some of this to Lori, but I will respond that I think um, we're, we've talked about breath. Another one of the ways to have our nervous systems be uh, be regulated is through relationships. I mean, there's networks of food, there's also networks of relationships, and the more that we are connected with each other in a way that feels supportive and safe, the more that we can feel that there's an extended network of people that are family, the more we can do a coordinated, proactive way of reaching out and supporting each other and those in need and those in pain. So... These networks are really critical, whether we're talking about food or we're talking about relationships um, or fuel. So I, for me, resilience comes through through zone regulation. It also comes through relationships. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, Lori, you guys also have been working with the farm and deforestation and uh, forestation and lungs and oxygen are all connected. Absolutely. It's... Um we we are what we eat, right? I, I mean, I think that's one of the things that you do so beautifully in your program, uh, different um, programs that I've listened to with this station. Um, it, it Taking it uh, deeper, taking it much deeper is to realize that we get nutrition and nourishment from our breath also. We know that. And and so we are how we breathe. And one of the things with the food situation in Ukraine that, you know, in the past there was uh, Stalin, Russia under Stalin, contrived a famine that affected um, way over a million Ukrainians starved to death in the 30s. And one of the reasons I think that they want Ukraine is because Ukraine is the breadbasket. And that's just one of the reasons why they want it back. But 
something that has been very painful for both George and me with our friends that are still there is the messages that say we can't eat or our family can't eat or our friends can't eat, even though there might be food there. They're, they're so stressed and panicked that they can't eat, they can't sleep, and they can barely breathe. And so there's that integral connection. And um, I'll just say with what George said about relationships, I so one of the things that they've said is that like the um, the WK, the, the World Kitchen, Mm-hmm. Do you know the name of that? Yeah, that, yeah. What does that name? That has come in and other organizations that have come in uh, to help feed people. They are making people feel truly that there is a global family that is caring about them. And that is helping to sustain them also. So, a type of nourishment and nurturance. Yeah, and so we have two minutes left, and again, there's um, a lot we could be saying, but any um, last-minute thoughts? Um, uh, Lori Ellis Young and George T. Ellis, authors of Breath is Life. George, any thoughts? That- well, I just want to I want to thank your listeners. I want to thank you. I have a lot of gratitude just for an opportunity to to share a little bit of what we what we know, what we really know works, and how to support people and how to help people regulate their nervous systems consciously so that we're able to be more present with each other, so we can support each other. Because if our well-being and self-care, even in a world of pain and violence, the more we care for ourselves, the more we can care for others. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, the more we care for ourselves. Because sometimes it almost feels guilty or wrong to care for ourselves, but it's just the opposite, finding those islands of peace. Yes. Absolutely. And I know. Yes, and Laura, I want to thank you too. Mm-hmm. Well, I know for me, it's been helpful. Like I know Insight Timer has some great free meditations. A lot of different people, and that's how um, we. I, I met um, one of the meditation or things that you were doing. But um, any other? Uh, we've got forty seconds. Oh, what's your website if people want to learn more about you? Breathlogic.org is one website, and breathe. The Change is another. Another website. Breathe the Change. Mm-hmm. Nice. Let's, let's, right. let's all leave in a nice right. breath and just um, <laughs> exhale it all out, right? Just breathing in. Uh, breathe in that peace and exhale out that icky war. <laughs> bye-bye, icky war. <laughs> yeah, bye-bye. <laughs> You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota.